Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today's guest on the podcast is Kerry Wagner. Kerry is the owner of Envision Counseling, where her specialties as a clinician include counseling people who have survived traumatic incidents, are diagnosed with PTSD, and those experiencing compassion fatigue. Kerry, we're looking forward to hearing about your experience as a clinician, your current practice, what drives your passion, your approach to helping first responders overcome their traumatic reactions and find pathways to healing, and I'm sure much more. First, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Thank you. Let me just say how how much I appreciate you having me on this podcast. It's new for me to do a podcast and it's exciting. Uh, So what I want to say is, yeah, so I go by Carrie and I am a licensed mental health counselor and I specialize in working with people who um, have been through traumatic events and it doesn't have to be the big T traumatic events, which I do work with people who have had the major traumatic events, whether it's combat, whether it's um, sexual trauma or physical abuse of some sort. I also work with the, the little T, the, the little traumas. So for somebody, maybe it would be a divorce for somebody else. Maybe it's a loss. Um, it can be many many different things. So um, I just really enjoy helping people get to a better phase in their life. What's the name, Kerry? Uh, Share with us the name of uh, your business, where it is located, Mm -hmm. um, just so that we can get that out there right off the bat. Yeah. So I have um, a private practice in Easton or Southeastern Massachusetts, and it is um, called Envision Counseling LLC is what you'll see on the little door. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Do you live, do you live in Easton yourself? I do. I actually recently just moved back again in, um, September to the area. Both my husband and I grew up in actually. Oh, wow. So yeah. any kids and stuff like that living in the school no, system? we have our dog. We have our 10 year old golden retriever. He's our baby. Oh, nice. <laughs> Way to go. Right. Yeah, I just got back from walking him, actually. Yeah, it's really hot out there. It is really <laughs> hot out there. So, Kerry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the meat uh, uh, of the stuff um, that we want to talk about today. We're Hope Beyond the Badge. Um, we talk with our guests frequently about mental health, um, mental wellness also. I, I should go that route. Um, in first response and veterans, right? And um, mm-hmm. suicide, suicide prevention, 
and then also like you know folks also share with us um you know their own struggles and and then also mm-hmm. path to healing um tell us a little bit about yourself like being a therapist was that something that you always wanted to do like what yes. how, how come getting into that field Share with us. It is something I always wanted to do. I don't really know why in the beginning I always wanted to do it. Um, but I know a lot of people these days when kids are going into college are like, it's okay to not know what you want to do. And it is okay. But I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was all for it. Although I will say I thought it was going to go all the way to get a doctorate and be a psychologist. And then I realized, oh, I don't have to. I can I can get out sooner and do what I want to do with the LMHC. Um yeah. So that's why I took that route. Um, I will say in the beginning, I did think I was going to go for family counseling. Um, My parents are divorced, like many (laughs) families. And I did think that was something I was going to go for um, to do family counseling. And then I realized as I got more education, did more internships and things like that, that I really don't dig family counseling. It's a lot to have several people in a room (laughs) And trying to yeah. get each one to take their turn and trying to end on time. Um, so I just realized that really wasn't my thing. I work much better one-on-one. Um, don't mind doing groups, small groups, but when it's a family, it's a little bit different. Yeah, it's sort of like the therapist needing a therapist after. <laughs> yeah, for me, yes, for me it was. It was like, okay, how do I now take a 15-minute break that I'm done when I really saw them for an hour and, and my next client is right now. <laughs> yeah, like sweet. Yeah, absolutely. That must have been a lot. So tell us a little bit about getting into that then as far as like, you know, choosing the role for mental health therapist. Um, mm-hmm. And then we can get into then you going further on to trauma education. Yeah, well, I guess I could go a few different roads on on how I, um, but what I will say is that I, you know, I was basically in mental health since right before I graduated with my bachelor's degree. I was in mental health or human services, whatever word you want to use. Um, I started working in supported living programs for people with severe mental health issues, schizophrenia, things like that, that needed support to take care of themselves, to go to the doctors, to keep their place clean. They needed prompts. They needed people to give them medication, things like that. So that's where I started out in the very beginning. Um, And then um, as I ended up going more towards counseling and doing the career, career for that, which is interns with education involved. And I started um, really liking working with people with um, trauma issues, which you're going to get no matter what. I mean, some people are going to yeah. have trauma no matter what if you're in the field. Um, yeah. But I just really enjoyed working with the people. And I really, I mean, I think I learned as a therapist, right? I'm not trying to say I know everything about trauma. I am simply trying to say, I know some ways to treat trauma and I'll tell you which ways I know to treat trauma and we'll see if it's a good fit for you. And if we think it is, both of us will move forward. And I think the what I really learned in just working with clients very early on was, you know, as individuals, you're an individual, you feel like you're unique yourself. Mm. And you have to remember that when you go into counseling, right? Like somebody who has this diagnosis of say depression or, you know, post-traumatic stress, that doesn't mean you're all the same. (laughs) You might have different symptoms. You might experience those symptoms differently and your life experiences could be totally different in relation to how you see your depression. Um, And 
how that affects you then is going to be different. So very early on, I realized that, yes, everybody is an individual and everybody has to be treated as an individual. You yeah. can't look at somebody and say, I know you have this. And so I know this is going to help. You can say this has been known to help a large amount of people with post-traumatic stress, with depression, with generalized anxiety disorder, whatever it is um, that you're working um, with the person on. And um, I think that was really helpful to have that perspective. Um, although the one thing I do keep that I try to put out there is that we're still all human. And as much as we're different, we're also alike in many ways. Um, and we all have an instinct to survive. Um, but we also all, or I believe anyways, that we all have the capacity to heal and to heal ourselves. However, you can heal yourself, but you do need the support of other people, right? Because that's what we are as humans. We're animals that need the support of other people. We were not meant to be on our own and never have anybody else around us. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. And that's how we heal. Mm. Um, I might be going a little too far ahead, but I will say that's one of the difficult things with trauma when your body and your brain is set for safety, right? You're set for fight or flight. You're not set for social engagement. You're not set to make new friends or to even worry about keeping your old friends engaged, right? You're So if you're constantly just surviving and in that fight or flight mode, yeah, it's very difficult to use your relationships and use your supports. And sometimes for somebody with trauma, I might be the only support really that they're talking to and they're connecting with. And right there, that's something, even if you don't even know a good way to treat trauma, which luckily I do, but even if you don't, that's a starting point right there is to sit down and say, I'm here and I'm meeting with you once a week. And they are maybe sharing some things with me that they won't share with anybody else in their life because for whatever reason, they don't want to hurt the other people. They don't want the other people to look at them differently. Um, they're ashamed of how they've changed or what they've become a lot of different things, right? Go through people's mind. Um, or maybe they just they connect with you. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's good that um, some of them do feel comfortable. Most of them, obviously, if they stay with me, um, they feel comfortable. That's why I try to have a conversation on the phone before I meet somebody in this world. Half the time people want to just email and then yes, yeah, set up an appointment. And I usually say, can we set up a phone call and we can decide if we're oh, a good fit that. for each other. Um, and that, helps right to determine like do i have the skills that you need do you do you feel like i'm a good personality fit for you yes um right that's important because that's very you can't important. just go with anybody yeah <laughs> absolutely and and yes having the right therapist um is is key um to helping a person heal themselves right but mm -hmm. also it can be um how would you say? It can hurt also if you have the wrong one in place. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't find the word there for a second. I know Jay <laughs> wants to chop in there. Well, uh, just to say, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, the right fit, the right therapist for the right person is is so important um, to the outcome, to, to the process. You also, mm -hmm. Carrie, mentioned at one point, you know, you said, well, I have these ways of, uh, of assisting others through trauma. What what are the treatment modalities that, that you use? What do you specialize in? How do mm. you um, help others navigate trauma? Yes, so um, in general, very early on, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy, which to put it in a very basic way is 
you know, your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors are all connected. And if you change one, so perhaps if you reframe your thinking about something, you change your perspective and then you change your emotional response. Um, so that's something I've been doing forever, um, for a really long time. And you can do that with a lot of different anxiety and depressive disorders. And um, you can do it with trauma too. However, with trauma, I have learned one, I'll say first, I don't have that much experience doing it, but cognitive processing therapy is basically um, doing that type of therapy with a lot of reframing, but constantly a lot of homework involved and a lot of reframing your thinking and your perspectives on things again and again and again to try to look at it differently and try to feel better about what happened to you. And um, so that right there, they focus on, um, I don't know if I'm going to remember all five areas, but they really focus on particularly five areas that are found with trauma. So um, safety, trust, um, something about relationships, intimacy, that's the word. Thank you. I was like, <laughs> so intimacy um, and power control. I'm not sure if I left out one or not, but that's there's there's five main areas that they generally focus on. And basically with that, it's supposed to be about 12 sessions where in the beginning you should tell your story and how it affected you right from the beginning, how it affects you now and all the areas that affects you. And you pull from that the things, the things really that you're going to work on, um, mm. which different theories will call them different things. So I'm trying to avoid what each theory calls everything because it's just going to end up sounding confusing in the end. Yeah. Um, but you pull these beliefs out basically. And um, so for them, it's stuck points. Right. For if you were doing cognitive behavioral therapy purely, it would be cognitive distortions. But basically, we'll just say the belief <laughs> that is causing a problem for you. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we work on there a lot. And um, uh, with the people I've done it with, they're actually mostly um, people who've had medical issues such as um, brain cancer, things like that, um, that were successfully taken care of. Um, those are more more what I've done that on. So that can only, is only supposed to be done with PTSD. So where EMDR is, I'll tell you what that is more, but EMDR is another thing that I like to do that can be used for those big traumas and those little traumas um, where cognitive processing therapy or CPT is really just supposed to be for somebody with PTSD. And I will say there's always caveats for these things. It's supposed to be 12 sessions. There's homework every single session. However, sometimes it might take a little more than 12 sessions for some people and that's okay. <laughs> so a lot of times people will hear 12 sessions, that's it, I'm done. And you know, you have to have a little bit of flexibility that depending on the person, they might need to work on one area a little more than another and that's okay. Um, so I've done it. I don't love cognitive processing therapy as much as I love EMDR. And so do you want to ask questions on that or should I just go into EMDR? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to ask a question on it. Why, first of all, why do you not love it? And um, why do you not love doing it um, with with a client? And then also, like, what type of homeworks do, do I mean, this, yeah. is, this is something that our listeners are going to say, mm, I want to know a little bit more about mm -hmm. that. Um, like, what type of homeworks are, is involved each week? Yeah, it's homework. So every single time you're going to have homework, and the homework is a lot of looking at your stuck points and revisiting them and reframing them. A lot of it is literally getting to the point where you're giving percentages as to, all right, how much do you believe that thought now? You know, how much do you believe that now? Um, and it's 
what is that emotion you have as a response now? And it's reframing, which I got pretty good at reframing over and over and over again, trying to get that to as good a feeling or as neutral a feeling as possible instead of it. I mean, there's no bad emotions, but what we would call a negative emotion, anger, sadness, things like that, that are uncomfortable that we don't want to feel. Um, So what I will say is you have to have a client who wants to do homework because many clients don't want to do homework. And so if that's the case, that's not the one for you. Um, But this is really detailed. They have to write down their stuck points regularly. They have to then do these worksheets. Part of the worksheets are Socratic dialogue. So just asking yourself questions in a certain way, right? Looking at things in a certain way. So in other words, saying something like, is that based on facts? When you say that, right? Is that like, so when you say, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't know if I can think of a good example right away, Um, but it's basically saying you have this belief about yourself and is that really a fact? And you're looking for evidence that it's not a fact, right? It's it's really not a fact. So maybe you have to change your thinking about it then, right? Maybe it's not 100% true like you believe it to be because it's not based on fact. Um, so it could be saying that it's my fault, like something as simple as, you know, this happened to, um, I guess it could be in combat, this happened to my buddy. Um, and it could be that they were the one who was supposed to be watching at that point. And so they take full blame and full responsibility that it's my fault that something happened to them. Um, so it would be really working on that and asking many different questions. That's just an example of a question, but yeah. asking many different questions to get the person to see that, hey, that might not really be based on facts or to see that, um there's other ways of looking at it. And um, sometimes you're asking them things like, is that um, an overgeneralization? Um, is that an exaggeration, right? So you're you're looking to see what are they doing? Is this really a factor? Is there a way to look at it and say, no, we can change that. That is not accurate. And come up with a more accurate description that then makes them feel better. So in short, I guess that's what I would say. And I will say, I don't know that I don't like it per se, but I just know that I love EMDR. Right. <laughs> um, uh, might be simply because I've had more experience with EMDR. <laughs> yeah. But also I think that with reframing, I'm just going to use a simple word as reframing, um, mm-hmm. that when there's um, a, a reframing, happening and someone gets it that's a magic moment it is <laughs> it is so um yeah I've I've sort of worked with reframing for a, a long time just talking about it just brought me up back to to those days do you want to chime in Jay um well yeah I'm interested to hear uh what you have to say about EMDR that's that's um I've I've had a few different uh forms of therapy and that was something that I used to suffer from nightmares right so it was mm-hmm. EMDR was something where I could see measurable improvement it actually caused me to stop having you know sleep terrors and other things um, so as much as you care to share with our listeners about the science how that how mm-hmm. that how that works yeah well I'd love to hear this yeah, so EMDR, right, um, is amazing. So eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, 
big name, but EMDR um, is, I do think it's wonderful. And I know there's a lot more research and I haven't necessarily looked at the research in the past couple of years that's come out that's new that tells us a little bit more about how it works. Um, but I can tell you it was something, so Francine Shapiro was the person who found this and they actually found it by mistake. Um, I think if I remember the story right, they were taking some kind of walk through the woods and they noticed as they were doing a lot of looking back and forth or left and right at the things around them, they noticed something happening. And then they decided to do some, you know, trial and error kind of things with it to see if they were really, if there was really something behind it and come to find out there was something behind it. And so, um, when we talked about the eye movement left and right, we talk about that maybe possibly it has something to do with REM sleep and how you have those eye movements as well. And maybe that is how we maybe process some of our memories and things that have happened to us. And um, so what we use is bilateral stimulation. So it is typically eye movement. Um, so you would be looking at something or looking at my hand going left to right, left to right, as your eyes go all the way to left and all the way to the right. Um, and at the same time, you're holding a target memory we're working on, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that. There are other ways to do it too. So I do this by telehealth as well. So I have people tap on themselves, um, which there are other ways to do it where you can use lights and have a computer thing doing it. But I just, I feel like that's all sorts of complicated when I might have to have a couple of screens going on to watch what the person's doing and watch the, the lights um, going on the screen as well. So um, what I end up using is the butterfly hug um, where people tap, um, right? So they basically put their hands together with their thumbs together as if they were making a butterfly and they tap on their collarbone. And that's another way of doing it left, right, right? So it's still bilateral stimulation, left, right. Um, I've had EMDR done on myself for grief and loss issues. And that person who I worked with used the tappers. So hand, um, little things you hold in your hand that vibrate. Um, so I've also used that. You can also, for chronic pain, it actually works well, I've heard, if you do it um, with your ears so you have noises. Um, and I guess it would just be a beeping. I don't know. I haven't done that on my own. But it's some sort of noise, left, right, left, right. So again, it's the bilateral stimulation. Um, so what this is supposed to do is, right, this theory is that we have unprocessed memories or at least not fully processed memories. And this is why they're bothering us. This is why things happen that keep triggering us. And we have really strong emotional reactions or physical reactions. And what EMDR is supposed to do is take that intensity away because what they do is they reach out to um, a memory and the whole memory network connected to that memory. So really it's about the way the memory is stored. And they believe that all memories are stored a certain way and they're based on how we experienced that moment. So based on how we felt, um, how we felt in our body, how we felt emotionally, they're based on a lot of similar things, maybe even based on our beliefs about ourselves in that moment when we experience something. And so memories are stored in a certain way. And what EMDR does is not just reach out to just one memory, but it reaches out to all memories in that network that feel similar. Um, and so that's why we do a timeline first and we figure out what's bothering you today. 
What are other times that you might have felt that way? And we kind of go through this timeline to see what needs to be worked on. And so we're actually fully processing the event by processing everything connected to that memory network. <laughs> I'm looking at him because he's like, wow, I can see his face going, oh, okay. <laughs> his head is like going crazy over here. Yeah, well, there was a few parts in that explanation that I hadn't heard before that made uh, that made a lot of sense to me. So that was well, that's good. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was very very good to hear. Well, I will say that there's different parts to it. So let me tell you, right? There's a part where, so when we do a timeline, we have a timeline of memories that we feel are connected to the way we're having problems now in our life, and so mm. things that feel the same. We have this timeline. And we give ourselves a zero to 10 on the timeline so we can say, it doesn't have to be exact, but we can say how distressing or disturbing is the event so we can see, does it get worse? Does it get better, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have some way to gauge, is this working, right? So the idea is to hopefully get it down to a zero. Sometimes if there are things going on in the environment, still it might go to a one and not quite a zero. But the thing is we incorporate everything. We ask for an image. We ask for a belief that goes with that image, a belief today, not a belief from when that happened, but a belief today right. when you think of that event. Um, we then ask for a positive belief about what would you rather believe instead, which is something we'll use at the end. Um, and it can change too, but the idea is to have a positive belief at the end. Um, and we go, we do ask the question of where are you feeling it in your body as well as what emotions come up. So we're well, trying to target all of these areas, right. By asking all those questions. And when somebody's doing the EMDR process, you never know, are they really going to have images? Are they going to have thoughts? Are they going to have, honestly, people have metaphors. They're like picture images of things that didn't happen, but it's like a way of, processing it and now they're protecting themselves or they're protecting their sibling or they're protecting someone who is with them somehow, some way. And so it's one of those things you can't really expect what somebody is going to go through with EMDR to be the same as what somebody else went through. Because honestly, I've, I've had somebody put a bubble around herself and her sister to protect them. That was way back when, when they were much, much younger, I've had somebody carrying a tree on his back while he was doing this because that's what he felt like the weight of the world on his shoulders kind of thing. Wow. So you never know. Yeah. And so it's just really interesting. And what I end up seeing, and maybe you've seen this yourself, I don't know, Jay. Um, but it seems like you start with, obviously you're starting with something that's considered negative. It's considered something that something that's distressing to you. Um, so you kind of start with that distressing image and it might stay kind of based on what we call negative stuff for a little while. And then at some point I see it turning over and then you'll kind of see it going back and forth to kind of negative, kind of positive or neutral or something different, something new. And it kind of goes back and forth for a little bit. And all of a sudden you usually shift <laughs> and all of a sudden it's different and it's either positive or neutral, or they're just looking at things differently. Like, Hey, that's not going to change. Like what happened to me isn't going to change, but I can now see that, um, whatever, like I can see a different perspective now that yeah. can help me move forward with my life now and not take all the blame perhaps, or all the responsibility for it. Um, yeah. I guess one part I left out is when we look for negative beliefs, there's usually three areas that your belief will fall under. So it's usually um, responsibility, which we can also say defectiveness goes in that category, as in it's my fault or I'm stupid, <laughs> right? I'm a bad person, things like that. Um, 
safety, obviously, is one of the categories. Literally, it can be about safety, life or death. Um, it can be about other kinds of safety, too. Um, and then um, power and control, right? So how much power, like maybe you felt completely powerless when this event happened. Um, and maybe you're trying to get some power back or some control back in your life now. Um, so these are the things that we look for. So I know that's a lot. That's like a big mouthful. <laughs> no, More questions? How it's are you actually, digesting it's, it? It's, yeah, I'm, I'm taking everything in here. I'm like trying to digest all of that and I I want to know more so um of how this helps first responders um and veterans can I read something can I read something um from because it'll start to tie into what you were just talking about um something that you just had on your on your site earlier on just like a little bio of you but it says and I, I want our listeners to hear so I have a passion for helping um people manage their trauma symptoms these trauma symptoms are trauma responses, and they were appropriate and adaptive. Uh, they were an adaptive reaction to to a time of trauma, and it no longer serves them well. Can you relate that into like put that into, you know, veterans and first responders specifically, and how we can sort of use EMDR right mm-hmm. and your treatment the treatments that you you use um mm-hmm. for those for those that culture yeah so there's a lot so let me see where to start with that um yeah so I think I told you when we first spoke um and I don't know how other um veterans and first responders will feel but especially when it comes to veterans and I know many veterans do become first responders at some point in time Mm -hmm. Jay is Um, also a vet and the first responder yeah there you go so you're a good example there um my father is not technically considered a veteran by definition because of the hours he served but he was in air force he was in the air force reserves and he is a retired um, police detective um so he did a little bit of both too um so trying to think of what's the best. So here's what I said, I think, when we spoke on the phone, is that what I've done, I did some research, and when I decided I was going to go more towards working with military first responders, things like that, I first Mm -hmm. started with research with veterans. And um, through that, I've talked to many female and male um, veterans and first responders as well. And I've basically figured out that you know, what you have to do for the people who are in combat or the people who who were in somewhere where they had to be on missions and, you know, check that a place is safe and things like that, that you take a lot of the stuff there that made you safe there and you take it back with you and that no longer serves you. So for instance, right, you're there on a mission, somebody crosses your path. Okay, well, you know, when you're somewhere else like Afghanistan, it doesn't matter whether it's a child, whether it's an old lady, whether it's a man in his 20s, it could be anybody who could have a bomb or could have a gun or could be threatening you. And, you know, so you have to react to that quickly and figure out, Hmm, (laughs) is this a threat or is this not a threat? And you think about it, like how, how well do you really sleep when you're on a mission, right? You have to be ready to get up (laughs) and be alert and ready to protect yourself and the other people around you very quickly. And so it makes sense that that you needed that there to keep safe. And then you come back home and now, gee, no wonder you're hypervigilant. No wonder you can't sleep, right? Because 
you're looking for danger. You've been programmed to keep you safe, to look for danger. And now you're coming home and there might not be danger, but your brain is still looking for it. Your brain is still thinking there's danger, there's danger, and you're looking everywhere for it. And of course you can't sleep, right? And so I just found it very interesting on some of those things that are meant to protect you end up being something that when you come back home and you try to live, uh, I don't know if I should use the word normal, but you try to get back to your life, um, right? Your life is not going to be the same as it was before. And then you have compounded on that. Um, the fact that say you had these certain roles in your household, right? So I don't know, maybe you were the ones who took the kids to all their activities. If you have kids, um, maybe you're the one who did all the cooking. I don't know, whatever your role was, now you're coming back home and the other person who's been there has been doing all those roles. Or maybe another person, maybe it's a in-law, maybe it's a parent, maybe, you know, and a brother, a sister, somebody. Yeah. Someone else has taken over and been doing all your roles. So now you also have that additional piece of trying to figure out where do I fit in now? So here you are mm. feeling very alert and aware of your surroundings even more than you need to be and looking for danger constantly. And then at the same time, you're trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do now? And you're trying to work those out again and figure out what your roles are now. And maybe they'll be the same as they were before. Maybe they won't be. Mm. <laughs> um, so there's a few things I see with that, with that um, veteran population. And um, whether you talk about veterans or first responders, what I do know, right, is that they don't share a lot with you. So my father... As a Hello. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't share a lot. So he shared fun stories when he was young and he was on the job and there were police chases. Like he might've shared some of those stories, but the really bad stories, he didn't share those. Right. He didn't. So people would face this trauma, whether you're a police officer, a fireman, and I'd done EMDR with some firemen who've seen some pretty horrific things. Yeah. Um, and you know, the things that you can see as a first responder, and then you come home and you're dealing with this and you're, you know, how do you get it out of your head? How do you get it out yeah. of your body? How do you get it out? Because you come home with this stuff. And what we've seen is that people who didn't have any trauma before, or let's put it this way, let's rephrase that people who have had traumatic events happened to them before, but they never necessarily had traumatic responses you don't know what's going to set them off. And then one day something happens and you have a traumatic response. And now suddenly those things that you dealt with as a job and you were good at your job and you knew what you were doing and they didn't affect you as a traumatic event, all of a sudden mm. those things can, can come back and start bothering you. I can say that as someone who worked, I, I worked with someone, um, I did not know EMDR at the time. So this was before I did EMDR, which I really wish I had been able to do EMDR with this person, um, but they um, had worked in a hospital before. Um, so they were one of those first people that you would see in a trauma, in a physical trauma situation. And afterwards, the things that they had seen, the people they had seen die, um, they literally were having hallucinations of hearing the wheels um, from one in particular was a child so they were hearing the wheels of this child who had passed away. And that was something that they did their job. They did the best they could. It didn't bother them before. And then something happened. So to tell you the truth, the trauma first happened to their child. And then they saw the video of what happened to their child. And then they also had PTSD. So now you have a family where both the parent and the child have PTSD. Um, and 
um, they were actually, these are actually hallucinations. And that's something that people don't think about with PTSD or post-traumatic stress. So what I'll say is that it's actually not that uncommon with mental health issues to have some kind of hallucination. So for instance, there's a number of people with depression that I've treated that maybe sometimes will hear something very simple, like they think somebody's calling their name, but they know that nobody's home, that that garage door shut and their spouse has driven away and there's nobody home, but they think they hear their spouse calling them and they might actually get up and look and be like, no, they didn't come back. They didn't forget anything. They're not home. So with people with mental health issues, it's actually more common than you think. It's not necessarily something that everybody with post-traumatic stress is going to have. Not everybody does, but some people do. Um, and unfortunately, you know, he would see images sometimes, right? But not only see images, he would hear yeah. hear things sometimes. And that was really difficult, right, for this person to be trying to live their life. This person, unfortunately, had a a really severe case of post-traumatic stress to the point that they had a medical issue that the doctor said, this is a post-traumatic stress related medical issue. That's why you have this issue and um, just so many things. And like most people, like we talked about, you don't want to engage socially. He pushed away many people in his life. Mm. Um, there was a friend that really, really wanted to stay in his life no matter what, but he felt like he had changed so much. He didn't want his friend to see him this way. And he kept pushing his friend away. Um, and this person had actually had trauma when they were young, but they didn't consider it trauma, right? They didn't consider it. there was some neglect. There was some alcohol of an of a parent, alcohol use of a parent. And um, they didn't consider that trauma, right? And they did have a good a good relative that was a good figure for them that did help them, right, when they were younger. Um, but at the same time, there were many traumatic events and some were their own neglects and um, when they were a child, and a lot of it was from work. And after this traumatic event happened to them when they were in their, well, I think they were in their 40s maybe, um, right? Everything, everything seemed to come back to them that they had handled as a job and they had handled just fine. And then you know what happens next. They could no longer work. They got divorced. They didn't even speak to their child anymore, the one who was now an adult who had had the trauma in the first place. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that can happen. And this is one of the reasons, and this was actually one of the people who made me even more want to work with people with trauma because of how tragic it is that people don't understand uh, what's going on and that you can end up separating as a family instead of staying together and getting through this and healing together as a family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's yeah, that really inspired me and wanted me to do more. And unfortunately, that was a different place that I had no longer worked at, not when I'm in private practice. And I don't know what ended up happening with him. Um, but it was somebody that I saw once a week, sometimes twice a week, um, because they did need that human connection and somebody that they could tell what was going on. Yeah. So the, the, unfortunately, this is the you know, with our own experience or with my own experience, we, you know, we lost our son, right, uh, to suicide, who was a police officer, um, is that, you know, a lot of first responders do not share um, what's going on at home, mm -hmm. especially um, to their families, because they don't want you to know um, whether it's protection, you know, mm -hmm. that you don't want to tell your families really, really these gory details about what you're after experiencing. But yet right. they're going, and, and a lot of times they don't share it at work either. 
um, with their mm-hmm. peers, um, even though their peers might have been at the same scene, same mm-hmm. call, um, but a lot of times they they won't share. Hey, that doesn't sit with me well, and mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of times they don't share it until it actually becomes a crisis situation, um, yeah. where it's just like they've hit rock bottom, and mm-hmm. there's nowhere else to go. But I need help. I think right there's a fear of yeah. a couple different things, right? There's a fear that maybe nobody else is feeling this way, and I'm the only one. Yeah. I think there's a fear, of course, that there's a stigma out there and they can't let anybody know that it's affected them this way. I know many people who are first responders have actually lied initially and said it was something else. You know, oh, I hurt my shoulder. They did something to hurt themselves and that's why they're out because they weren't ready to share um, that it was post-traumatic stress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, You mentioned the word stigma. Let's get mm-hmm. into that a little bit, um, especially with first responders and, and, and veterans. But um Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, this is something that why what why we started this podcast in the first place um, was to help first responders make it easier, I suppose, make it easier mm-hmm. for first responders to be able to talk about um, their emotions, right? What they're what they're yeah. feeling um, without being judged and mm-hmm. or being penalized. And for a police officer, um, you know, their biggest fear is if they talk about they're not well or they're not feeling mm-hmm. good about their fears that their gun is going to be taken away and right. they can't work and support their family. So they'd rather mm-hmm. hide all of that. And then for a fireman, I, I think, you know, a firefighter is this superhero, um, I'm Superman type of guy you know I'm out fighting fires and I'm you know burning buildings and and that type of thing and um you know the fear of also speaking about you know this this is too heavy on me I don't know how to handle this I'm I'm feeling different um so can we talk a little bit about that like your experience with that with Mm -hmm. first responders I mean maybe Jay can also chime in with this one um here too um, about mm-hmm. that, about the stigma and what what you get, what you see and what you hear. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you that people or at least veterans or first responders, I think if they're going to get treatment, they tend to go for individual treatment rather than being in a group um, because of that, that they don't want to share. Yeah. Um, there's something good in sharing sometimes because you can realize somebody went through something similar and somebody's feeling the same way you are. And, you know, there's healing and being able to say to somebody, hey, that's not your fault. And then it's like, wait, wait a minute. You just told me it's not my fault. Then why is it your fault? Right. And there can be some sharing and some healing in that. But it's very rare for people to want to do something like that because then, right, yeah, there is that stigma there that you're going to say something nobody else is going to understand you. Nobody else is going to feel that way. Or they're all going to say like, oh my God, why are you still working? You should not be working if they are still working. In fact, um, a lot mm. of times when people come to me, they're actually not working anymore or they're on leave of some sort. Um, and right. And that's sad. Wow. And I want to help them get back. I want to help them get back to what they want to do. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think that what they, right, I think what anybody needs to know, if you're going to counseling for any reason, you don't have to sign a release 
right? If you're, you can come, first of all, you can come and self-pay, but you can also come and use insurance. And the only person who has to know anything about what's going on then is your insurance company. Like I need to send them a diagnosis in order to get paid, right? Yeah. But otherwise, it doesn't have to go to your work. It doesn't have to go to any of your coworkers. Like you would have to sign a release for that. So if you think you need help, you can reach out and get help. And if you want individual help, that's fine. You go to somebody, you seek that help as an individual, one-on-one, you work with somebody and you can get that help. And unless you sign a release that you want it to go to your work, um, then you don't have to. And I can say I have somebody recently that I was a fireman that I worked with and, you know, he did recently um, send me paperwork for all the stuff to go to his job to say that, hey, I do have um, PTSD and um, I did work on it here <laughs> and we Good did for EMDR. Him. Yeah. Um, um, but not everybody does, right? Sometimes yeah. that's what they're so afraid about is that I don't want it getting back. Somehow it's going to get back. They right. think I have to. I don't have to report anything to anybody unless you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else really, or unless your judgment is just so off um, that I think you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. Other than that, there's no reason for me to tell anybody anything. And um, what I say here, for examples, I don't give names. I don't give, you know, generally I don't, I don't give an exact age. Sometimes I'll say they, sometimes I'll change a he to a she or a she to a he or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah but I'm not going to say where I worked with them or what town it was in or, you know. So so. I I have a a question for you. So you said that um, a lot of the times that first responders will come to you when they're at a stage where they're not working. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they, from your own experience, I mean, dealing, you, you deal with all first responders now, right? A lot of first responders mm-hmm. and, I do. and veterans. I, mean, I deal with everybody, civilians, first responders, military, yeah, yeah whomever. Um, yeah. So here's an unfortunate answer that happens a lot of times, right? So people want, they think, or they want to get better. They definitely want to get better, but they think they can handle it on their own. Um, and sometimes because they are afraid to tell other people and get help, Right. Unfortunately, sometimes it's alcohol. Sometimes it's other things. Um, but sometimes it's things that don't help. Um, it could be food. It could be. But I do see a lot of addictive behaviors or maybe not even addictive, but just not healthy behaviors um, are happening. And that's what they're doing because they tried to find something to replace it, something to make them feel better, something to help them escape. And it doesn't work because all that stuff is just temporary. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it sure is. I think I think you're so right too when you talk about the culture of first responders uh, holding a belief that that they can handle it on their own, uh, and it makes sense because for at least some period of time they were able to, whether they were coping in healthy yes. uh, unhealthy ways um, or not. That's that's where that belief mm-hmm. comes from. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's almost it's a cultural norm, um, just like vigilance. You know what you said about vigilance. That that's one of the mm-hmm. most interesting um reactions to to trauma uh i think especially Mm -hmm. the way that you were describing it when when you think about how that fits into a person's life uh you know based on on their circumstances their geography what their roles and responsibilities are um, in a certain situation in in the military Mm -hmm. it's a goal to achieve that mindset for for reasons that make sense and then you come home and it's it's a very uncomfortable thing to bring to the family cookout 
Um, and then as a first responder, it's like you're expected mm-hmm. to turn that switch on and off. Um, mm-hmm. And again, for a period of time, everybody, um, everybody that does those jobs, they, they believe that they can because they have. Uh, yes. And I think a lot of those elements come together and, and create stigma. Um, mm-hmm. How do we get over that? Like, do you have any ideas on, on how to overcome or impact or reduce stigma within a culture where it's so understandable uh, why it's there and what creates it? Mm. That is a good question because I think there's a lot of programs out there. There's a lot of people out there, individuals that are trying to do things to sort of break through that stigma. And I think you you mentioned um, uh, or Linda mentioned suicide and suicide prevention and things like that. And I mean, really, that's why I think a lot of times it does lead to suicide because people are looking for escape. They can't find a way out. They're not willing to share things with people. Or sometimes, unfortunately, they have shared with people and they haven't gotten the responses that they need. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think it can lead to a lot of negative things, right? So it can lead to those unhealthy behaviors like drinking or drugs or food addiction. It can lead to someone wanting to take their own life. It can lead to a lot of negative results. Um, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And yeah, it is that question of how do you normalize? Because even as I was sitting here, I'm thinking to myself, well, how do you normalize hallucinations? You don't because hallucinations are not normal. Mm -hmm. And I did indicate that, Hey, some people with many different mental health issues do have psychosis. Hallucinations are considered psychosis. Um, and it's not always somebody with post-traumatic stress doesn't always have that, but you can. There's another thing I look for sometimes with, with people with post-traumatic stress too. So dissociation, how much do they dissociate and believe it or not, you know, we don't look at that as a normal thing, but people dissociate all the time. I do it all the time. Okay. So have you ever done this? You're driving, you're on automatic pilot. And all of a sudden, you missed the exit you were supposed to take. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're usually driving to one spot. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time, right? Daydreaming, stuff like that. That is dissociation. So right. to even try to normalize something like that, that happens every day to a degree. It's when this stuff happens too much when it gets in the way of your life that's what too much is when it gets in the way of your life when it gets in the way of your functioning when it's causing a problem that's when it is a problem otherwise it's just something that happens okay whatever Mm. so i dissociate sometimes when i drive yeah (laughs) Yeah. um so it's sort of that question of how do you take that with all of this stuff and make it okay um it's it's a really hard thing to do i guess the best that we can do is say that stuff that you, that little quote that you read from the website there, mm. uh, you know, all that stuff that basically what you're doing, your brain and your body, they're, they're reacting or responding the way they're supposed to. And it's to protect you. And it's just that that danger is no longer there and it's still acting that way. And so now we have to work with you so that your brain and your body learns a different way to respond. And oh that's really what it is. So maybe that's the best way to talk about it, to start normalizing it. Yeah. To say, doesn't, there's what you're going through, what you're experiencing, especially as a first responder, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's no it's it's normal for you to have these responses right yes. um from what you've experienced mm-hmm. it's it's normal you're not a weirdo sorry but right. i <laughs> used that term but you're you know it's normal for you to to experience what you're experiencing going through mm-hmm. because it's not normal what you see every day you know right. the, one of our one of our guests and our, our previous guests a, a firefighter um said a while ago like put a normal civilian in one event right in in the scene mm-hmm. a traumatic scene a car accident whatever it might be mm-hmm. and and how would that affect them for the rest of their life just that one scene right. i know i would be like mm-hmm. i wouldn't be the same again right i would is, yeah the fact that you're saying that you wouldn't be the same again yeah. i think that's really something to keep in mind i think i learned when i was a younger therapist and was more like hey you're still the same person i know this happened to you but da 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 anyways I've learned that, right? That, yeah. Okay. You can't just tell them you're, yes, you went through something traumatic, but you're still the same person. No, you went through something traumatic and you are a different person. You have changed. And technically your brain has changed. Therefore your body has changed because your body re- responds differently. Right. So yeah. in other words, you really have changed. And I've, I've worked with at least one, only one person I can think of, but I've actually worked with one person who literally changed their name because of their trauma and part of it might've been to protect them and make sure somebody didn't find them. But on the other hand, part of it might've actually been just because they felt changed because I've had other people, um, including first responders tell me that they, they've thought about changing their name because they're just not that same person anymore. And if you try to get them to use anything that maybe would help them regulate their emotions from their past, they sometimes can't access it. Like, no, that's not me anymore. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, and just exactly like that, that one probably incident would have a huge effect on my life, right? And I'd probably have to work on it really hard. And then when you you have a first responder, a firefighter going to multiple scenes, you know, multiple calls a day, uh, Mm -hmm. every day of their career for many, many years, and then not being able to talk about it. Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean... Yeah. Oh my goodness. I just want our listeners to hear the enormity of how big that Mm -hmm. is and how it has an effect on our first responders every day. Um, And and not only that, but physically, right? Physically, a lot of first responders, right? You can be uh, more likely to have heart attacks and things like that. It's because you're, you know, you rush to a site right? Yeah. You get all worked up. You have all these endorphins and everything flowing. And sometimes you get to use them, which is not necessarily what you really want, but sometimes you get to use them. Sometimes you don't. Yeah. And sometimes you just stayed all worked up and where did all that stuff go? It just sat there in your body. It's not really good for you. Yeah. And then you have to go home to your family. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and as Jay had said, like go to a soccer game and, you know, interact with other parents there and you don't want to talk about it, as, as you said. Well, right. I mean, it really, it, it overlays your perspective. You know, if you're on the scene uh, of a fatality accident or, you know, something happens to a kid or something like that, you're going to carry that for, for a period of time. And, and, you know, the human condition is the human condition. So we've been coping with it. The reactions have always been there, um, you know, whether it's some of the, the coping mechanisms you talked about, like abusing alcohol mm-hmm. or 
you know, losing or having a decreased ability to, to connect to loved ones, whatever mm-hmm. it is, um, it happens slow, you know, and, and, and then there's other ways that it can be dealt with as well, like meditation and therapy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and you find an increase um, in your well-being. But there is a lag time, you know, when you come off a shift and then you have to go interact with people um, that have a, a quote-unquote normal normal life. Um, yeah. And that, that, I think, is a difficult part of existence for many first responders, um, mm-hmm. though also worthwhile. There's a lot of purpose in that job and in the duties and in selfless service. Um, but we hope to, to normalize these conversations and, and to reduce the stigma so that, mm-hmm. um, so that that culture can begin to adopt more healthy coping mechanisms and, and, and mm-hmm. we can see some real change. Yeah. yeah, I think that people, first responders like yourself, you sound very committed, right? And all the first responders I've worked with sound very committed. They like their job. They're dedicated to their job. For yes. some of them, I can't, right? I can't picture doing anything else. Yes. I need to do this job. Yeah. It's so a, it's scary. Yeah. It's a calling, I believe. Yeah. You know? So it's and, scary to think, hey, right? I might not be able to do this. Yes, absolutely. So so for, for me, um, you know, in in the first responder community, um, having them, you know, I just want to get the, the word out there. Do you, do you mm-hmm. talk about like being a leader with first responders when they can, you know, share, um, you know, what they're going through? I believe mm-hmm. that a first responder sharing and standing up, and I think that it's, it's sort of like, I don't know whether it's, if, like a fierce energy that has to well up inside of someone to say, I don't give a damn what others are going to think about me. I mm-hmm. I want to say, sorry, did I say bad language on podcast? You started to look at me there. No, for a I'm just agreeing um, with you. I'm like nodding. With <laughs> you. Okay, okay. Get that, like <laughs> that a first responder has to say, you know, I don't, I don't care. I don't give a damn about who, who or what or when are going to, to be talking about me behind my back, right? Right. Within my department or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm getting well. And I'm doing this for my children. I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for me. Mm-hmm. I'm strong. So I, I class that as a leader, you know, yeah. a strong leader. And we're both a first responder when they're going through struggles or um you know, challenges with um, mm-hmm. whatever's going on with them. They they think there's a, a weakness involved, like they're associated with weakness. Right. I think that's what we need to change mm. is that's where we need to change. No, you're strong because I don't know if all those first responders are saying, yeah, I'm a leader and I'm strong. Well, then they, they wouldn't have any fear, right, right. of right. saying – you know, taking up for themselves, right? Being an advocate for themselves, and um, you know, say yeah. While while you're talking about me, I'm I'm healing, I'm I'm getting better, you know, and I'm getting help, um, so that I can I can live a, a good life and still do my job well. I think that would be great if people would do that. I'm not going to necessarily encourage somebody to do that or not, unless they are basically telling me that they would like to do it, and then mm. sure I'll give them support and encouragement, but I won't mm. necessarily push them one way or the other as mm. far as 
getting it out there and being a leader and letting people know. However, what I do know is that people tell me sometimes that once they, you know, maybe they didn't tell a whole group of people, but once they let it out and told a couple people, they usually find out that out of those couple people they told, one of those people have also suffered post-traumatic stress or depression right. or something as well yeah. from the job. And, you know, by, you know, so it tells you that, yeah, you're not alone. And if you do tell others that you will find out that maybe you'll have 10 people in a room and there's a few of you that have actually gone through something similar and you could actually help each other by saying, Hey, you're not alone. And once you find that out, you can certainly, you know, have the confidence to go tell other people to go stand in front of somebody and say, don't worry about anybody else. If you want to get better, <laughs> do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Absolutely. Just do what you got to do um, to get it to feel better. Yeah, and those conversations, I think, more often than not, will come to the first responder who's begun to recover because uh, we work so intimately with each other, especially in the fire service where we eat meals together, we live together a couple days a week. Mm -hmm. um, you tend to notice when, when people are suffering. I, I know that when I was suffering, it was noticed, right? And then I think that it's a common experience for uh, first responders when they go and seek help to feel strength, not to expect to feel that way, but to mm -hmm. actually uh, feel the strength in the process of healing. And what's also noticed by coworkers in that close environment is when somebody begins to recover and then mm -hmm. others that are suffering because how could they not be? We d the science and math is in. We know, you know, we're, we're trauma responders, right? That there's, right. So there's, there is a percentage of that group that is not going to be resilient at any given time and is going to be suffering to one degree or another. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when they notice that someone has taken that step, right, they, they may not know that they got help or whatever, but they, they see a change in that person. Mm -hmm. They may not want anybody to know, quietly pull you aside, where did you go? What did you do? I'm not sleeping. I'm drinking myself to sleep. I'm having nightmares. I'm, I'm not being the father that I want to be. I'm short-tempered mm -hmm. with my family. All of these things that, yeah. you know, and to someone on the other side of that conversation that has experienced some healing, it, it's a beautiful moment. You know, you just smile mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, go there, man. I, you'll be okay. <laughs> you know, there there is help. There is, you know, there's hope and there's a way uh, you can mm -hmm. recover from this. That's the likely outcome. And the likely mm -hmm. outcome of, of, of uh, drowning yourself in a bottle every night, uh, it's not so good in many, many yeah. ways. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that conversation comes to you when you heal. Yeah, good. Sure does. That was very well said, Jay. Thank you, I have a question for you. Um, you work. You work together with um, Julie, Julie Lovely mm -hmm. from Wild Heart Horses. Um, yeah. Share with us a bit uh, of your interaction. How what what you do there with with her? Yeah, actually, it's really great. We we actually work really well together. Um, where you know I let her take the lead because it's with horses, and I can't I can't really say I know nothing about horses anymore from doing this for a few years, but. <laughs> Really, I know nothing about horses and the stuff I've learned just from going to that program mm. over and over again. And I let her take the lead and she'll say something and um, and then I'll chime in and add something about how in your everyday life, take a thought with you about, you know, how you can use this to help you. And um, you don't even always have to do that. So what I will say is that working with the horses and what Julie has taken it to now 
it's very somatic. It's very body based. And I think that's great because I'll tell you with, so I'm going to talk about EMDR again for a minute, but what I'm going to say is EMDR, I've seen wonderful results. Um, like you mentioned, Jay, about nightmares. I mean, I, I had somebody that I worked with that really did only take the eight sessions because they say eight to 12 sessions, but I'm going to put it out there. If you have a lot of childhood trauma, it could take a year. There's no set number of times for EMDR. However, what I will say is that there was one person I can remember very after the very first session of EMDR, nightmares were gone. They had nightmares every night. All of a sudden, nightmares are gone. I can tell you I worked on with a veteran with um so this person and their spouse had both been veterans. Um, well, this person's still alive, but their spouse had taken their life. And um, mm. that's what they came to do EMDR on. And this is not a usual effect of EMDR in my experience, but what ended up happening is that image of finding the spouse was no longer visible. <laughs> it was kind of like they could see the scene around, but they couldn't actually see that part that was so traumatic that they had such difficulty getting through when we were working on it. And then obviously difficulty moving forward with parts of their life because of that. And I, I let this person know, well, this is unusual. I have not heard people say that before, but Hey, you know, it's supposed to reduce the intensity. Apparently it's working for you. And this person said to me, I feel like if I tried really hard, I could grasp it, but why would I want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause yeah. this is what I wanted. And they felt much better about things because they could see other things around them, whether it was back then or now they could see more around them than that. And it helped them get past it. I know some people come in for work on boundaries with their family because of past childhood stuff. And all of a sudden they're putting boundaries everywhere. It's with their family. It's with their friends. It's with their job. And then they get a promotion at work because they're setting these boundaries and it's just amazing. So these things usually spill over to other parts of your life and they end up being good things that are helping you. And usually the progress continues even after you're done doing EMDR. And um, the thing I've noticed with some people, not all, some people what happened, technically EMDR works and their responses to their triggers are better. So physically, they're not as intense. Emotionally, they're not as intense. And now they can they can handle it. They can see that it's there. They can calm themselves down, which is great. However, they still want more, right? They're still like, I'm still feeling it in my body and I don't like the way that feels. So every once in a while, we get a couple of cases where that's what's left. And so I knew then, okay, something somatic, something with the body is needed. Yeah. I need to keep doing more because what I would do in those cases is consult some friends of mine who had more of that training with somatic interventions that I don't necessarily have. And then all of a sudden, Julie is taking these courses with her natural lifemanship. I think that's what it's called yeah. with the horses. And she's bringing this stuff in and it's totally about the body and it's complete emotion regulation. And it's like, this is perfect, right? Mm. This is what we need to bring to the people who are sort of saying, Hey, EMDR helped. It's great, but it's not perfect. And I want more. And mm. now this was the thing that could help because there's lots of other ways to help with the body, but yeah. I haven't had official training in a lot of those ways. And so when I, when Julie started taking um, the horses for heroes program with veterans and first responders that way, I was like, this is great. This is perfect. This is just what's needed for a lot of people. Um, so I really thought that was great because it really, it helps people really sit with themselves in the moment. How are you feeling? What are you feeling? Maybe not what, maybe you can't always identify what, but you can say, where are you feeling it? Yeah. 
um, and you can actually sit with it. So it's really good because as far as emotion regulation goes, she was doing some exercises there that were really giving people some awareness of what you're feeling. And sometimes for some people, what emote, like I felt that before, is this from, right? Is this from what's going on right now? Or is this something from the past? Is this actually luggage from the past that I'm carting around with me and I'm still feeling, and this is not really an appropriate response for what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, So it gave them a lot of tools to be able to do that and to be able to regulate. And I think she mentioned something on her podcast, um, about regulating how you might go back and forth from, you know, now we're the ones again, we're the ones who label it bad or good, but I'm just going to say it anyways. So say there's a spot in your body, you feel tension. It doesn't feel good. feels uncomfortable. And then you can pay attention to another spot in your body that feels better. Right. So you can look for the most calm spot in your body and you do a little bit of back and forth, back and forth. And although that doesn't have to be the main purpose of the exercise in doing that, you regulate your emotions and that tense part of your body generally gets better. You feel lots of relief. Sometimes it goes away altogether and no longer feels tense at all. And so it just gives you so much. It gives you awareness. It gives you tolerance to be able to sit with an emotion, even if it doesn't feel good to be able to just sit with it, observe it, be aware of it right? Recognize if it's happened before. Um, and then to actually, you know, really, truly regulate yourself and feel better if that was really intense and really difficult for you to sit with. And now it feels better. Now mm. it's less intense. Now mm. you can sit with it and it feels better. Yeah, absolutely. So those were the types of things we were learning there and was really great. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love this. Um, trying to trying to put it in a in a in the right way so here you are a a trauma therapist mm-hmm. and you have clients and mm-hmm. um you're doing just say emdr right and mm-hmm. you're doing mdr emdr and you could just leave it at that mm-hmm. and when a, a a client says to you this this is working for me it's worked for me. I'm still feeling this, though. You could have just left at that and said, guess what? You have to figure it out or let's do some more, <laughs> some more, some more sessions, right? Or whatever it might be. But the fact that you, you know, said, well, where else can this go? Like really, right, having a person mm-hmm. be in touch with their own body, right, and their own nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to regulate it and understand it a little bit more right understanding mm-hmm. sense of self right um so you then taking your practice and then bringing it your client giving your client this extra extra mm-hmm. step that they yeah. just might need oh man that's like that's just like beautiful like hearing that <laughs> Um, and working with Julie, and then you also getting to learn a little bit more, and then also be able to mm-hmm. say, "Hey, this this might be this might work really well for this client who might need it." I think everyone mm-hmm. should do Julie's program anyway, that regardless <laughs> whether they're first responders or. I mean, I want to mm-hmm. get in there. I don't have an option to get in there unless it's a private <laughs> session that I have to go in. But yeah, I think everyone should do that and be aware of themselves a little bit more, right? Their own nervous mm-hmm. system um, and being able to regulate. 
what's going on in our daily lives, right? Yeah, um, it really is. Yeah. It is great. And I have like, I have no problem, no matter who I'm working with, if they want something that I don't offer, be like, all right, well, I know these people that offer this, or yeah. would you like to try this? And um, here's something that I think might work for you. And, you know, if it's something where I can consult with somebody and I can do it myself, great. But sometimes you need a little bit more training or a little bit more experience. And yeah. Right? And so then I send them somewhere else. And this sometimes this is great now, right? That Julie yeah. has this program and has yeah. gone in this direction with the program Yes, that I can then say, hey, I think this might help you. And this is why. And of course, I'll, I'll take sometimes I've even said to Julie, like, what the heck? Like, I'm a trained trauma therapist, like trained in the treatment, diagnosis, diagnosis and treatment of psychological um, trauma. And, you know, so really PTSD is one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I was never taught this exercise, like like that one particular exercise I mentioned. Um, yeah. I was like, I was never taught this. Why was I never taught this? This is awesome. Like, I love this. And I have literally taught almost every single one of my clients this exercise since I learned it. Yeah. Um, I do think it's amazing. And yes. actually, if you, so if you want to get back to a little bit, so my personal journey wasn't necessarily about, you know, why I went into this field. But my personal journey was more about being in this field. It was weird how my personal and my career journey kind of seemed to echo each other. So last year, I lost three people um, in my life um, who were pretty close to me. Um, It was really hard for me. And so EMDR is one of those things that you can do it for trauma. And that was mainly what it started to be on. But you can also do it for phobias, which I do as well. And you can also do it for grief and loss. Um, And so I particularly was like, well, I love EMDR. So I'm going to go to somebody who's trained in EMDR and I'm going to work on the grief and loss issues with this person. And I went and it helped and I felt like we were pretty much finished, but there was a little piece about, I don't know how to say it, but basically with one of the losses, there was something connected that with another, another family member that hadn't quite been worked out. And it was really interesting because I then just happened to go to a couple of different intro to psychodrama therapy courses. Mm. And these are actually about action. They're action methods. Even if it's just you're standing up and moving, um, it's a little different than just sitting down and talk, 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 talk therapy, right? Yeah. It's different than that. Yeah. And um, there is some role playing like you might think, but there's a lot of other pieces too. And so it was really interesting as I was like, well, I'm done with what I want to do with EMDR. And I don't know that I even realized if there was more left to do. And then when I took that intro, there's no way to do it, but experiential. So we're basically doing our own work. There was a real small group of us. And I did some of the work on this issue. And I was like, oh my God, I wasn't even sure that I still needed to work on it. But now that I did it there, I'm like, this is great. I'm like, yes, I'm definitely done with EMDR for me, for what I needed to work on with the loss. And this is the next step. And I'm going to do the psychodrama therapy and get that there because this is also action oriented and will help me in that way. And the weird thing is that before I even really got a chance to continue with it, I I don't know, one day out of the blue, I really just said, because it was sort of about forgiving this person for what they, or what I felt they did. Yeah. Um, And I literally just said out loud, I forgive you. Wow. Oh my goodness. So in, the, in my own journey, it was like, okay, so I did some grief and loss counseling that included EMDR, and then there was a little piece that still needed work. I just happened to do this intro to psychodrama therapy as a therapist, not as a client, yeah. but it's very experiential, and so I did the work, and like this came up, and before I even got to like, hey, let me find a therapist to do this with, and blah, 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 
it just worked itself out and I feel really good about everything that's worked out. That doesn't mean I don't miss the person. It doesn't mean I don't cry sometimes or people, but there's one person in particular that's the hardest, right? So yeah, I still miss them. I still cry sometimes and that's normal. That's okay. I don't feel like it's coming up and interfering with my life. I don't feel like it's, um, and it was as a therapist, it was interfering with my life. It was very difficult to work and have people say things that were constantly triggering me with, you know, they weren't purposely saying anything, but some people were already working on grief and loss issues. And it was like, yeah. and I had to go continue working with them and they would sometimes say things that would set me off. And I would have to be like, okay, Carrie, this is not, this is not your trauma you're working with right now. This is their trauma. Yeah. Could you get yourself back? And I would have to, you know, in a, in a matter of seconds, <laughs> get myself back to, okay, you can cry later. <laughs> like, let's get back to what this person is talking about. Yeah. Um, and after doing the whole EMDR and the psychodrama therapy, I felt like that was not as much of an issue at all that that, I mean, time has gone by. I'm sure that's part of it. Mm. Um, but I think that's part of it too. I think that I do credit the EMDR very much to a lot of that, of being able to be okay with it. And because I can say there's somebody that I work with that, and she knows this, I've told her, um, that has, um, she lost um, one of her parents to something similar to what I lost one of my um, step-parents, to, um, step-parents to. And, um, you know, it was a horrible disease um, mm. to see somebody go through. It was very similar. And so I had told her, you know, hey, like if we really end up doing that, because that wasn't really the focus of her EMDR, but I had said right from the beginning, if we end up doing that, just so you know, I'll let you know if I can do it or not. Might remind me too much of what I've gone through. I might not be able to. Um, but anyways, we finished what we were doing with the EMDR. We got to that stuff and um, I was actually fine doing it. I was fine talking about it because I could separate this is her and her experience. And that was not the same as me and my experience. Yes. And um, it was just so, so amazing to be able to do that and to be like, okay. And it doesn't mean that people don't remind me sometimes of loss issues that are close to what I went through. Um, yeah. It happens. Yeah. Um, but I just feel much better equipped to deal with it now. Yeah. Sounds like you're so, able to regularly, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to tell you the truth, I was always very good at if I needed to shut it down, shut it down. Um, but you know, I was also really good at reading stuff or looking at pictures and crying for a long, long time too. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was, it was good. It was good to be able to feel really good about that and to feel that I can still be upset and it's okay. And I'm human and to get through it. And, and that's the thing. I am human. I'm like everybody else. I'm not perfect. And yes. um, my traumas may not be the same as somebody else's or my losses may not be the same as somebody else's, but we all go through things. And I just want to be able to help somebody go through whatever they're going through so that they can make it to whatever it is they want to make it to, whatever their goal is to move forward, I want to be able to help them get there. And I've seen myself how it helps people through EMDR and then knowing that it helps others. I used it for myself. Um, and then some of this action stuff. Um, I didn't use as much of the Julie stuff with the body because I don't know if I maybe didn't recognize the way it felt in the body or not. Um, but yeah. I didn't really use that for that, or maybe it was just the way it happened or the timing. Um, I didn't really use a lot of that, but I still use something that was very much action-based and doing the psychodrama therapy is action-based. So I feel like what Julie's doing is very in your body based. What are you feeling? 
focused at? What are you feeling? What are you noticing? Oh, the horse did that. What are you noticing? What's your response to the horse doing that? So the horse moved away from you. How does that feel? Mm. (laughs) Notice it in your body. You can tell me if you want to, or you cannot. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, Oh, the horse came to you when you wanted the horse to come to you. How did that feel? Where do you feel in your body? Because obviously you can then take this to your human interactions. Yes. And And relationships. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's great there. Can I ask you a question? Um, Mm -hmm. Like from your own experience, um, been through your own trauma um, Mm -hmm. and helping yourself heal, um, has that helped you be a more compassionate therapist? Hmm. Good question. Um, I don't know. I feel I was pretty compassionate to begin with, or I'd like to think so. Um, mm. I'm, I've always been pretty good at putting myself in other people's shoes to some degree, even though I could never really put myself in other people's shoes because some, some things that people have been through, I wouldn't even want to imagine. Mm. I can relate with that too. And I think that for me, um, with, with my own, um, healing was, having a purpose um and turning my energy into um Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that like grieving um is an is a negative energy it was something that you have and it and it goes up and down you know Mm -hmm. ebbs and flows right um (laughs) it comes and goes in different ways and sometimes I can be angry and sometimes I can be sad and Mm -hmm. um and all of that that goes along with it but I think that turning my um, energy into helping others, um, especially Mm -hmm. other first responders, um, helping them Mm -hmm. to know that they were here to listen and you, you, Mm -hmm. and it's okay for you not to be okay. Um, it's just not okay to stay there and we want to help you Mm -hmm. get some help and and realize that you can heal and Mm -hmm. and you can work your job and you can have a healthy family life and and the whole thing so turning that my energy into that it was definitely something that um has just changed put me in a whole new direction if that that makes sense I do that's great to hear I I do very much agree with that I've heard from so many people that that's part of what helped them right that they got better and then they sort of had a mission or a purpose to help other people who've been through something similar and it can be anything it can be a mother's against drunk driving kind of thing it can be a a suicide um that you've been through it can be many many different things can come up and you can help to advocate for people then and hope you hope that you can be the voice that tells somebody it's okay and i'm here or there are resources here for you absolutely and 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 that's that's how the podcast started Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's how the podcast, that's how myself and Jay met, that's how the podcast started, that's how we have many people coming in for interviews, having the likes of yourself, who's an expert in trauma, um, with first responders and veterans, that's what it's all about, is getting that information out there for our listeners who mm-hmm. are first responders and first responder families, right, um, and then in living in communities, or someone who loves a first responder, it's it's mm-hmm. very important to get this information out there. Um, yeah. And I'm, we're so happy to have you on here tonight and sharing with us, you know, all the, the treatments that you um, provide um, to be able to help a first responder heal. Um, so well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for coming on with us, Kerry. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to um, be one of the people who give some information out there for yes. people with trauma. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. But before I let Jay chime in, because I know he's going to get in there, how do people find you? Is there a website, phone number? Tell us how, how yeah. people can connect with you. There is a website. So um, Envision Counseling, we said, is the name of my practice. So the website is actually Easton, as in the town of Easton. So it's EastonEnvisionCounseling.com. I know that's long. <laughs> um, my email is pretty much the same. It's Carrie, but I spell my name K-E-R-I. Yeah. So it's Carrie at EastonEnvisionCounseling.com is my email. Um, my phone number, I will tell you, I usually don't answer the phone, but if you leave a message, I will call you back. And it is 508 508- Two one nine two nine zero four. Okay, perfect. I wanted to make sure we got that information out there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie. Uh, Easton Envision Counseling. If anybody out there listening is seeking help, and we really appreciate um, you being a guest on the podcast and, yeah. and a very, very informative conversation. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. I thank you for making this so easy. Like I said before, I was nervous because I've never done a podcast. And yes, it was very easy to talk to the both of you. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Thank you so much. Kerry shared with us what a positive impact therapy can have on an individual in getting to a better place in their lives. Kerry is passionate about her work as a trauma therapist helping veterans, first responders, and others who have experienced trauma and the negative symptoms from those experiences. Carrie explained some things about different therapies, EMDR, CBT, CPT, and how those processes can promote well-being and lead to recovery. Until next time. Until next time.